This morning we enter a sermon series entitled Issues Facing Christians. This was originally to be a Sunday morning educational series, but due to our change of location and our contracted schedule, I thought it was appropriate that we move it to uh, the Sunday morning worship service as the subjects we will address. Each one are very relevant and very important. Albert Thompson will be our guest speaker. Uh, preacher this morning. Albert and his wife Jennifer and their two children, one of whom is very young, have been members of this church for quite some time. How long, Albert? Five, seven, seven years? 2011. 2011, so a good long while. Albert serves on the vestry of the church, which is a leadership body of Christ the King. And Albert is a historian. He is both teaching history at the collegiate level and is studying, uh, pursuing his PhD as well in history. He has thought a very deeply and carefully about the subject of this morning, the subject of race. And uh, we are really privileged to hear from him on this subject. I've often joked with Albert that he is the most famous Anglican at Christ the King. Uh, due to his careful, thoughtful study, he's been invited to speak uh, to national gatherings of the Anglican Church as well as international gatherings. So, Albert, we're Look forward to hearing what you have to share with us on a very important subject, and let me pray for you as you uh, preach to us. Oh God in heaven, we lift up to you your servant Albert. May the words of his mouth, may the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, thank you, David. So first off, for everyone, I am getting over having the flu for two weeks. So if anything I says doesn't make sense, I blame it on the flu. <laughs> it's an interesting thing to come to this subject because I didn't start off on this. I started off studying the troubles in Northern Ireland and eventually from that history, weaving my way into uh, race and identity conflicts in the United States and then from there moving further into how that affected the church historically. And it comes out to be a fascinating history of deviation and then reformation. Reformation is an interesting thing for Christians because in many political movements or religious movements, reformation means a change or departure from the past or moving towards something new. But for Christian, reformation has always meant something very, very different. It has always been to point people backwards towards the original intentions of God, towards what it meant for Christ to sacrifice himself on the cross. And what I'd like to talk about is how Jesus' message of liberation and freedom is what Christians have in the, America, in the United States for the last 50 years been pointing themselves back towards. And that our reformation is always to be more Christ-like and not to conform to the world. In fact, one could say that from Paul's letter to Philemon, back to the Sermon on the Mount, and even to the Annunciation to Mary, what the message of Jesus Christ has meant is freedom and liberation from our sins. And that as we become free and liberated from our sins, we are restored to our proper relationship to God our Father. And through our relationship to God our Father and through our oneness in Christ, we then are restored to our proper relationship to our oneness with the other children of God, our sisters and brothers in the faith, the church. In this, we have our identity as children of God. That is who we are and that is who we are called to be. As Jesus Christ said in the book of John, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You're also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. That's a very interesting way of identifying your community. It's to be unique and different from other communities, from others based on power or domination or control. 
we are the church in that we love one another and that love is visible. That identifies us and who we serve and who we are to be. Within the Christian framework of the biblical anthropology, we've often been confused in the United States regarding ideas of race. It's kind of a curious thing as such a concept doesn't actually exist in the scriptures. In fact, such a concept as we understand it didn't even exist until the 15th century. So we're then dealing with was relatively new concept and one which doesn't have a biblical framework. The Bible deals with languages, it deals with kinship network, it deals with families, it deals with tribes, and it deals with nations. It even deals with states, kingdoms, principalities, empires. But this idea that has crept into the church and into the West, the idea of race, is not one the Bible actually deals with. Throughout the early history of Israel, there are constantly people coming in and out of it, whether it's the great multitude that leaves Egypt, whether it is Ruth that enters into the, the nation of Israel, Israel is essentially a family, and that family takes in members all the time. What unites them is their special relationship with the God of Abraham. What unites the church is a special relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a pattern that is replete throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. In fact, it gets even very specific about this identity of different nations coming together in Christ in Acts 17. Paul speaking says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Once again, we are united both in our predicament, sin and separation to God, and united in the option he gives us towards salvation and redemption. This has always been the message of the church from the beginning. However, there's another message that the church has taught and has believed, and we should believe now with seriousness, that we do have an enemy who desires to interrupt the work of God, to impair our relationship with God, to separate us one from another so that we do not reflect our Savior. Paul, again speaking, once said of someone who was opposing the scriptures and the spreading of the gospel, he referred to him, again in Acts, as a son of the devil, the enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And this was when Paul was witnessing to people in Cyprus. He was being opposed. He then spoke a pronouncement against the opponent of the gospel so that people would see that God took seriously this struggle and by this punishment upon the evildoer, others came to the faith to see that God was calling his church to live out their gospel, their truth, and to make the crooked path straight while the enemy was doing the opposite. The church 
throughout its history, from the time of the Roman Empire into the Dark Ages, was always moving towards greater freedom and liberty. It was always changing the nature of the relationship of man to one another. And the way it did this was by declaring not that people ceased to be Greek or barbarian or Jewish, but that they became something different in Christ. Something superseded that. And that demands upon how Christians were to behave one to another. One of this was to treat people as brothers and sisters in the Lord, which meant that one was not to oppress. This moves forward from the fall of the Roman Empire and into the establishment of the barbarian kingdoms in the West, where the barbarians were at once enslaving people, but as they became Christian, Throughout the 7th through the 9th century, the church began to impose conditions on them. Part of this was in response to the struggle with Islam. As the Islamic power swept through North Africa and the Middle East in the 7th century, they enslaved many Christians, and it made the church take a stronger stance against enslavement of people by saying that you could not demand from human beings that which God himself denies himself, that which is control of the will that if God gives human beings free will, then the church says human beings cannot exercise that kind of mastery over one another. And so you have this pattern throughout the West and the East of the church ending the enslavement of Christians and permitting enslavement only in cases of war against enemies. This moves forward even into the conversion of the Norse during the Viking invasions where the conditions of being recognized as Christian kings was to liberate people, to end the slave trade, etc. This moves forward to popes in the 8th and 9th century outlawing slavery in Rome, purchasing slaves, setting them free, and even going so far as to prohibit the selling of Christian slaves to Jews or infidels throughout the Venetian Republican Empire. This goes to the conversion of King Stephen of Hungary, or later the Kingdom of Hungary, in 985 AD, where a condition of this was that the Magyar people, the Hungarians, would have to abolish their enslavement of the Slavs and convert people to serfdom if they want to be recognized as Christian kings. This is proceeding throughout the centuries, throughout the medieval period into Iberia, where then we will encounter a few problems. You see, one of the problems that we get to is that the enemy is always tempting us to walk away from the gospel. Oftentimes, we can feel justified in this. There can be anger. There can be resentment. Until the year 1492, from 711 to 1492, the Islamic powers dominated Spain. And the Christian princes of the north waged a war to redeem Spain called the Reconquista. Towards the middle of the 15th century, the Reconquista is all but one. And the Christians of Spain came up against a problem. They had been victorious, and they had taken over many Muslim and Jewish peoples throughout Spain. And many of those peoples, under pressure and by the work of the Holy Spirit, were converting to the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic Church had a simple statement, which is, you must treat these people as your brothers and sisters in Christ. And the peoples of Spain began to say, actually, we don't want to. And so they invented a new doctrine, Limpianza de Sangra, purity of the blood. We do not have to treat these people who have converted these conversos as members of the One Holy Catholic Apostolic Church because their blood is not pure. The Roman Catholic Church opposed this for the simple reason that it actually usurped papal authority by actually claiming to have the right to determine who is and who is not part of the body of Christ, which popes tend to like that prerogative, as you might imagine. At the same time, the Ottoman Empire was striking against Constantinople and eventually conquered in May 29, 1453. 
This precipitated a crisis whereby the Portuguese desired to establish trade networks independent of the Ottomans who were their enemies and began to explore more around the world. As they did this, they began to encounter new peoples and sometimes to take captives. Over time, the Spanish in 1492, after defeating the last Islamic stronghold of Granada, also began their exploration, discovering the Americas. And slowly but surely, more and more peoples fell on the sway of the Portuguese and the, Sp and the Spanish, who had this new doctrine of blood purity, which began to be used to justify the enslavement of the indigenous peoples of the Americas and eventually the Africans of the West and East Coast. What happened is that this ran up against opposition to the church. Men such as Bartolomeu de las Casas, who eventually was given the title the protector of the Indians, was a Spanish priest and eventually bishop who fought for the rights of the indigenous people, claiming that these are people who have to be granted freedom through Christianity. The response was to say that they are incapable of receiving the church and receiving the faith. What happened is that you begin to break the historic link between Christianity and liberty by claiming that certain people should not be saved. There's a common myth that they go to the Americas and they immediately start converting people by force. It's actually not true. They understood that Christianity meant freedom. And so the opposite happened where they would actually not want to convert people because if you brought them to the faith, then you had to treat them as equals. Over the centuries, this changes into justifying the mistreatment of people even though they're your brothers and sisters in Christ because their blood was not pure because they were different. It's an inversion of the original teachings of the church that had been extended towards freedom and liberty since the Dark Ages and even since the beginning of the Roman Empire when the Christians first began to live out their community of faith. This became very interesting because this was a repudiation of the gospel of Christ. As Paul said, in the book of Romans, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And we had opportunities where this began to occur. Las Casas preaches against the abuse of the indigenous and against the abuse of the Africans, and eventually Pope Paul III himself began to speak against this, and his papal encyclical, uh, Sublime God, Sublimus Deus, where he wrote a very interesting thing just 20 years after the Reformation that somehow has been lost to us, sadly. He was responding to the enslavement of the indigenous peoples and the Africans by his Spanish subjects, people who should have been loyal to the papal tiara. He wrote to them, to all faithful Christians to whom this writing may come, health in Christ our Lord and the apostolic benediction, the sublime God so loved the human race that he created man in such wise that he might participate not only in the good that other creatures enjoy, but endowed him with capacity to attain the inaccessible and invisible supreme good and behold it face to face. And since man, according to the testimony of the sacred scriptures, has been created to enjoy eternal life and happiness, which none may obtain save through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, it is necessary that he should possess the nature and faculties enabling him to receive that faith and that whoever is thus endowed should be capable of receiving that same faith. Nor is it credible that anyone should possess so little understanding as to desire the faith, and yet be destitute of the most necessary faculty to enable him to receive it. Hence Christ, who is the truth itself, that has never failed and can never fail, said to the preachers of the faith whom he chose for that office, Go ye and teach all nations. He said all without exception, 
for all are capable of receiving the doctrines of the faith. And then the Pope brings us back to the original teaching of Christ, that there is a division between God and between the enemy, one that desires your good and one that desires to sift you as wheat. Pope Paul wrote, the enemy of the human race who opposes all good deeds in order to bring men to destruction, beholding and envying this, invented a means never before heard of by which he might hinder the preaching of God's word of salvation to the people. He inspired his satellites who, to please him, have not hesitated to publish abroad that the Indians of the West and the South and other people of whom we have recent knowledge should be treated as dumb brutes created for our service, pretending they are incapable of receiving the Catholic faith. Often people say, we know, if the Pope said that, and he follows up with pronouncing excommunication on those who enslave and abuse the uh, indigenous people, people say, well, what happened? Well, a couple of things. One, that whole Reformation thing kind of interrupted papal power in Europe and limited his ability to get his way. The other thing is that the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V was also king of Spain and was using the wealth of the indigenous peoples that he had conquered and plundered through his conquistadors to fund his wars against the Ottoman Empire, against the French, and against the pirates of Tunisia. And he had no intention of promulgating papal doctrines that would interrupt his cash flow. And so he simply made it go away. In those days, it was up to Catholic kings to reproduce papal documents, and he simply did not do so. At the same time, the Reformation was breaking out in England, producing eventually our church, where papal doctrines, as you might imagine, for the English reformers, no longer had the same impact they might have had earlier. And so it falls away. When we moved to the English Empire in British North America, we had a new problem. Slavery did not exist. Race did not exist in English law. Over time, it is formed and created throughout the 17th century without reference to the earlier doctrines of the church. And people did not actually try to give freedom or, or excuse me, Christianity to the enslaved Africans of the Americas because the English themselves continued to recognize that Christianity meant freedom. It was only during the 18th century that that began to change where new doctrines were invented to justify the enslavement, mistreatment, and abuse of your fellow Christian and therefore to authorize the conversion of the Africans. That then became the great scandal that was dealt with during the Civil Rights Movement. The idea that people could worship in the same language, live in the same countries, be citizens of the same state, claim to worship the same savior, and yet still were not brothers and sisters in Christ because they were different. That was a long process, and this very short history has just been to explain how that process developed. This Sunday, what David wanted me to do was to point us back towards this history, but also to think about what Martin Luther King Jr. represented. Simply, that's our Reformation. We did not have the Reformation of 1517. Those issues were dealt with. Even the Roman Catholic Church has largely conceded most of the points of the Protestants over time. Our Reformation was against something new and different and unique, particular to us. The racism in the United States has always been rather unique because it's always stood in opposition to American ideas of liberty. That's always produced a conflict. Rhetoric for liberty on one hand, actions that are not quite living up to that on the other. It is that tension and that fullness to not recognize uh, what that means for us that has always impacted the mission of the church. Even now in the 21st century, we have noticed that the church comes under constant attack from a variety of quarters. The church is intolerant, the church is unkind, is not charitable. We find as though our identity as Christians has been stolen by all the things that are said about us. 
And then we find that because of the way we have dealt with this issue in this country, the opposition to our faith has a strong, credible case against us. But if we listen to Pope Paul III, we recognize that for what it is. That was always the intention of the enemy, to call us away from the gospel, to pull us towards a heresy of a different idea of what humanity represents. But our Reformation that began before the 60s, but which created an environment for now for the last two generations, Christian Americans have been able to have this conversation differently without the oppressive power of the state pushing us towards heresy. Christians have had the chance to make a change, and change has been slow, but I doubt if Martin Luther or the other reformers in the 16th century actually knew what they were in for, or how long it would take for their movement to take off. What then should be the message today? That our reformation is a reformation towards Christ. To recognize the sins of the past as just that, sins, as heresies, as things we throw away, repent of, that we lament, that we say, how, Lord, did we allow this to happen? And then we say, we know how, the same way we let all sins happen. We lose sight of who our Savior is and what he has called us to do, and we are tempted to be conformed to the world because it is convenient or beneficial. But the Christian life is a life of trial. It's a life that's not called to be easy. It's called to be something we walk in with Christ. And sometimes, pushing against the grain of hatred and resentment and greed, that is hard. It's convenient to go along with the world. But the church has never been called to make things convenient. It's always been called to make things Christ-like. So how then should I end today, having gone over this history? To point us back. To point us back to Jesus Christ. To point us back to the decision that people began to make, especially after the Second World War, but even earlier, during the fight against enslavement, during the abolition movement, during the Civil War, where Christians have from time to time actually listened and said they will take up their cross and follow the Lord, and they will not be conformed to the world. And the world will hate us for it. They will call us hypocrites. They will do all the things that the enemy has always raised them up to do against us for 2,000 years. At some point, I think it's time we say, it doesn't work. The thing that works is Jesus Christ, his church, the foundation of which is based on the truth of who he is, and against the church, the gates of hell shall not prevail. Even now, in the midst of our Reformation, I see a congregation that David has called accidentally diverse, and that it was not done intentionally other than to be a community of believers that worships in the Anglican tradition, centered on Alexandria, and attracting all those who are willing to worship here in loyalty and fidelity to Jesus Christ. I point us back to Jesus Christ because our reformation that continues in this country about human dignity, about the family, about life, about what it means to be a believer is based only on one thing. Who has Jesus Christ called you to be? And will we submit to him and be what we were called to be? The daughters and sons of our Father in heaven who has called us to live according to his will. To that I say, it may be hard, but he never promised it would be easy. He promised that he would get us there, not by our power, but by his. That's the same for me, that's the same for my family, that's the same for all of us. 
if we stick to that, we will be where he wants us to be. And that's just fine. Thank you.